eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. It's eight o'clock. <laughs> so welcome to today's morning Dhamma talk over here at Jhana Grove, Wednesday morning. And again, Wednesday morning. Have I got that right? Okay. It's really strange, but you do lose track of time, whether it's Wednesday or Tuesday or Thursday or whatever day of the week, because all the days are pretty much the same. We do the same chanting in the morning and in the evening, the same jokes. <laughs> and I always say that I love teaching elderly people. Because <laughs> they forget I told that joke last week. But nevertheless, you can see just the way I teach you. That I have a lot of happiness teaching you. A lot of happiness for meditation. There's a lot of joy in seeing this beautiful place here and getting up in the morning and see the great early morning sunrises and dawns. It's a beautiful place. And that encourages really nice people to come here. And all of the people working here, whether it's the cooks who come in here or it's uh, naughty around in the back, or anybody else who helps out. Amazing characters. You know how much Nordia gets paid to come and be the retreat manager for eight, nine days? How much does she get paid? Absolute zero. That's the best gift. Nil, zero, emptiness, nothing. That's the best gift you can ever get. That's one of the reasons why some people have done this. If it's a birthday or they want to say gratitude to someone for helping out, you get a nice little box. Don't, don't put an eel in it. <laughs> but just put nothing in it. And you give it to your person you really respect. And this is nothing. From me to you. With lots of lots of love. Have you ever noticed that love and nothing are sometimes the same, especially in tennis matches. <laughs> There's a very deep connection there. But anyway, that what I'm going to start with before I get on to other stories and jokes, where can I put it? Here it is. I think um, this is uh, some of the suttas. And just to let you know that I know what I'm talking about, I don't just make this up. <laughs> This is one of those uh, sayings from the Buddha which is very important to what I talk about here. And many of you have known this before, but I thought I'd read it out. This is Morris Walsh's translation. It's good enough. So, uh, this is the Buddha talking to one of his uh, monks. And this is called the Parsadika Sutta. Number 29 of the Diga Nikaya. It may be, Chunda, the wanderers of other sects, that means you know, non-Buddhists, but people who would be committed to try to find out some truth in this world. It may be, Chunda, that wanderers of other sects might say, the ascetics who follow the Sakyan, the Buddha, are addicted to a life of devotion to pleasure. If they should be asked, if so, 
they should be asked, what kind of a life of devotion to pleasure indeed? For such a life can take many different forms. Do you think I'm devoted to pleasure? Thank you, yes. One of the weird things, you become a monk and people say, oh, it's such a hard life. It's so difficult. All those precepts, all those things you can't do. But I mentioned to you before that when you actually do it, it actually feels very liberating, very free. Even when I just started you know, keeping five precepts as a, as a student, I felt so much more freedom and liberty. I didn't understand it at the time, but what you were doing, you were having freedom from desires instead of freedom of desires. It was a different type of freedom, but it made your mind feel so at ease. But anyway, yes, I'm devoted to pleasure. <laughs> Sometimes I think, hey, come on, Ajahn Brahm, be serious. You can't be devoted to pleasure. You're a monk. Yes, I am. So anyway, what kind of a life of devotion to pleasure, friend? For such a life can take many different forms. There are, Chunda, four kinds of life devoted to pleasure, which are low, vulgar, worldly, ignoble, and not conducive to welfare. You know what the word for low is in that? You may know that word used in a different context. It's called hina, like hinayana. So, uh, what are they? Firstly, uh, not, into dis not leading to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, tranquility, to realization, to enlightenment, to nibbana. What are they? The lives of devotion to pleasure which are low. Firstly, a foolish person takes pleasure and delight in ki killing living beings. And there's some people like going hunting or going fishing. When I was young, I always liked the idea of going fishing. So I asked my father and my grandfather to, can I have a fishing rod? And he had to save up, and eventually we got, they brought me a fishing rod. My first fishing rod. Actually, the only one I ever had. And there's no real places you can go fishing uh, in London. Even the River Thames was polluted in those days. And so they decided to go to this lake outside of London where you pay a little fee and you can go fishing. And I was so excited going fishing for the very first time. But of course, I was only 11 years of age. And so as my grandfather decided, he will show me how to cast you know, the line into the lake. And he took it at the uh, fishing rod up with all the the airs of an expert, and when he cast the line, it got stuck in a tree. <laughs> and he pulled it, and he broke my fishing rod. <laughs> I never even had one go for myself. <laughs> I, was, I was very upset at the time, as you can imagine, you know, saving up my birthday or Christmas, I forget which present it was, but anyway, I had a fishing rod, and my, my grandfather broke it. 
years later, I say, oh, thank you so much, Grandfather. What a wonderful... I think the heavenly beings must have done that. They saw my grandfather casting that one, and they decided to pull it this way, so it got stuck in a tree. And when he tried to yank it out, it broke the rod. <laughs> I was very fortunate. But even these days, if anybody wants to go fishing, fine. I ask them, why do you like going fishing? They say, for the tranquility and peace. Because sometimes these places you go fishing are just beautiful parts of nature, nice rivers or lakes, and it's nice and peaceful there. And I say, yeah, I approve of that. But to make it even more peaceful, make sure you don't put any hook on the end of the line. <laughs> no one will know, <laughs> except the fish, and they'll be very happy with you. Because that's under the, the surface of the water. So you're sitting there, and it's even more peaceful and more tranquil. You're just there with a fishing rod, <laughs> doing absolutely nothing, because you can't catch anything because there's no hook on the end of the line or anything. So I always thought that's a wonderful way uh, to uh, spend an afternoon going fishing, but with no hook on the line. Look after the f poor fishes. Anyway, so the <laughs> world. There are four kinds of life devoted to pleasure which are low, vulgar, worldly, noble, not conducive to welfare, not in disenchantment, passion, to dispassion, to cessation, to tranquility, realization, to enlightenment, and nibbana. There, first, a foolish person takes pleasure in delight in killing living beings. Secondly, someone takes pleasure in delight in taking that which is not given by stealing. And sometimes people like doing that just to see if they can. And, you know, there's some sort of delight there. You're Bucking the system. And even like in our Buddhist society, an example of that was that um, you know, people would join our Buddhist society for 12 months in a year, but then for the second year, because sometimes people forgot, if you were a member of our Buddhist society uh, but it expired, after the expiry date, you got 12 months to renew. And so this fellow decided to work the system and he would just join our Buddhist society, or pay the bill, only once every two years. Which meant that legally he was always a member. But he didn't have to pay. And that, I think, he could afford it. The only reason he didn't, he didn't do it, just to see if he could. Takes delight in bucking the system. Thirdly, someone takes pleasure and delight in telling lies. Fourthly, someone gives himself up to the indulgement and enjoyment of pleasures of the five senses. These are the four kinds of life devoted to pleasure, which are low, vulgar, not leading to disenchantment, to enlightenment, to nibbana. And it may be that those of other sects might say, are the followers of the Sakyan, the nuns, and the monks. What me to include the, the bhikkhunis as well. I'm including the bhikkhunis. <laughs> ah, the followers of the Saxons given to these four forms of pleasure-seeking, they should be told no, for they'll not be speaking correctly about you. They'll be slandering you with false and untrue statements. There are, Chunda, these four kinds of life devoted to pleasure which are entirely conducive to disenchantment, 
actually instead of dressing charm, the word there is viraga and nibida, so yeah, to nibida. Nibida is much stronger than disenchantment. Sometimes the Buddha gave a simile. You might find like a big sore on your leg. You don't sort of have like disenchantment for it. Oh, I'm not going to be interested in that anymore. It's something which you have to do something about. You've got like a big sore or a boil or something on your leg. So you have to make sure that you find a way to treat it. Ah, disenchantment to dispassion. Instead of dispassion, the word is viraga. And it does have an alternative meaning, and a meaning which is more appropriate is fading away, disappearing. When you see, let's say, a boil on the leg, that was a Buddha simile, a boil on the leg, and you have nibida towards it, then somehow you treat it or something, so it starts to fade away. It gets better. And from Nibida, okay, from Nibida to cessation, that's uh, Niroda, that's when the problem's gone. And to realization, to enlightenment, to Nibbara, sorry, I missed out, to tranquility. That's the upasana. And all of these things, this is actually where this path is supposed to lead to. The things, problems being recognized, fading away, ceasing, and the peace which comes after that, the upasana. Now, whenever you do any type of practice of meditation or whatever, always check, what does it do? Does it create more problems for you, more difficulties, more stress? If it is, it's going in the wrong direction. If it leads to things fading away and to peace, this upasama is going in the right direction. And eventually it will lead all the way to Nibbana. So anyway, there are four types of life devoted to pleasure which lead in that direction. What are they? Firstly, a meditator detached from the five senses, detached from unwholesome mental states, enters and remains in the first jhana, which is with the movement of the mind which goes onto the object and stays with the object, and uh, with delight and happiness, the piti sukha, born, created by the detachment from the five senses in the body. And then the second jhana, and then the third jhana, and then the fourth jhana. Uh, these are the fourth kind, four kinds of life devoted to pleasure which are entirely conducive to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, tranquility, realization, enlightenment, to nibbana. So if one of some other sects should say that the followers of the Sakyan, Buddhist meditators, are addicted to these four forms of pleasure-seeking, they should be told, yes. Are you addicted to the four types of pleasure-seeking? Are you interested in them? And the idea of being addicted to them is an intense word. Uh, He said, that's good. Then such wanderers might ask, well then, those who are given to these four forms of pleasure-seeking, how many fruits, 
How many benefits can they expect? And you should reply. They can expect four fruits, four benefits, from being addicted to these four types of pleasure-seeking, the jhanas. The first is when a meditator, by the destruction of the three lower fetters, has become a stream winner. Then, when the meditator, uh, by, by the, um, the, what's it called, the uh, lessening of the next two fetters, becomes a once-returner. With all those first five fetters being overcome, become a non-returner, anagami. Or, by the destruction of all the fetters, in this very life, by their own knowledge and realization, attain to being fully enlightened in arahat. So that is um, a little sutta there. It's in the Diga Nikaya, which makes an important point. A point which, as a young man meditating, it stopped me feeling guilty about enjoying the pleasures of meditation. Because sometimes, even now, some of you have told me that you get some happiness enjoying the meditation, and you think, oh, something must be wrong. I'm enjoying this. And it's one of the reasons why that some people come to this place, Jhana Grove, and they say, this is too comfortable. You've got to be tough to be enlightened. And then I read out passages like that just to let people know that's not correct. You find this middle way and after a while that middle way leads you to having a very beautiful mind and then it's, you know, you're addicted to pleasure seeking if it's of the, in the mind, the four jhanas, of course that is going to lead to stages of enlightenment. That's just what the Buddha said. And of course it's a very, very happy path. Am I a happy monk? All the years you've known me? Am I just taking it easy and not doing the proper practice of being a disciple of the Buddha? So we try and live by example. Teach by example. So what I do, I teach others. And also, uh, it shows the importance of happiness and joy in the path of meditation. And it's one of the reasons why we built this place like we did. Some people think this, I know the first time Singaporeans came here, they said, this is almost perfect, all you need is a golf course. <laughs> <laughs> and this will satisfy as a resort. <laughs> and they had a point in there. People think, so what, you got an ensuite in every room? Did that surprise you? <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe how I had to fight for that as a monk. We had a little committee just to make Jhana Grove Retreat Centre to design it and build it. And I insisted, that's one thing I was not going to compromise on, on having an ensuite in every room. And the reason is because that many of you are getting old, you have sicknesses, and it's wonderful, you can, you can meditate in your room, it's comfortable in there. And especially if you're worried about having to go to the toilet, having a shower, you know what it's like sometimes in retreat centres. Uh, if you have like, a, like the, the toilet block, sometimes you have to queue up to get into the toilet. 
and <coughs> that's very stressful. Especially sometimes people here, they are getting on in their years. Now there are some people in here who are over 70. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you, Suijima? <laughs> you're 70. Oh, you're younger than me. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, monastic years, yeah. How old are you in monastic years? You're 13. Still a teenager. <laughs> oh, sometimes I must be honest with you. 48 years I've been a fully ordained Buddhist monk. And that's, that's a long time. It doesn't seem that long. Just year after year, you keep on working. You're giving all your energy, all your sweat, all your blood, sweat, but no tears. Oh, but I should actually talk about tears now, because when you develop a lot of inspiration and join the practice, tears do come. It's a form of pity sukha. Because some people will ask me about that in their interviews. Sometimes you're meditating and you start crying. Is that wrong? You know, I, I know the Vinaya, that's the rules for monks and nuns, and I also know the precepts. And I know there's no precept saying that you should refrain uh, from crying. <laughs> that is one of the forms of joy which comes up. And I, as I mentioned to many people, I never cried when my father died, never felt like it. I haven't cried since. But what I, what I do cry is when you hear a really good Dhamma talk. It really gets into you and inspires you. you know, oh, that's amazing. Or one time when I used, well, we used to go on these pilgrimages to India, and the two places I love going were uh, this museum outside of the deer park in uh, Benares in Sanat. Because I just like that museum because in that museum, that was where they had this beautiful Buddha, the Dhamma Chaka Buddha, with the big um, aura behind his head. And you can see that sculpture in so many places on the front of books. People try and replicate it, but the original is just almost perfect. And I remember the first time I was looking for it, I always wanted to see it. When you did see it, in the museum, sort of outside of Delhi, you turned a corner and there it was. And I couldn't help myself. I burst out crying. I was a monk, monk for many years. But just the inspiration just, just hit you and tears flowed down. And the second time I went on a pilgrimage to India, I knew what to expect. And I also remember telling, uh, one of our members, I don't think she'd mind me telling you, that was uh, Ainge, uh, Barbara, Ainsley's wife. At that time, she was a Christian. Her husband was a Buddhist, but she was really interested in Buddhism. She's now a full-on Buddhist. But anyway, that I told her like a, you know, an orientation meeting before we left to go on the flight to, um, to Gaia in India. I told her what to expect, that some of these places 
you know, it's where the Buddha walked and meditated, where he got enlightened. They got power to them. They inspire you. And at the time, she confessed this afterwards, she thought, I was a crazy monk. She'd grown up in England. He said, there's lots of old ruins in England. And I've been in the Tower of London, I've been in this place and that place. I've never burst out into tears in Warwick Castle or any of these other ancient places. Why should I burst out into tears when you go into, say, Bodhgaya? And anyway, the first time we landed there, and we got out of the plane and we got, went into the hotel. And from the hotel, we had a quick walk to Bodhgaya. And when we went into the, the main shrine there, <laughs> she burst out weeping. <laughs> it was totally unexpected. And so afterwards, she came to my room and bowed three times and, and said, I apologize. I thought you were mad. <laughs> but it was true. She had this incredible amount of weeping. She didn't know where from. And that's sometimes what happens. The inspiration just comes up to you and just gives you this beautiful sense of, of happiness. And the only way you can cope with it is just crying. So, but anyway, the second time I went there, I was prepared for it, going to see this beautiful Buddha statue. And of course, when you turn the corner, there it was. And, uh, and sometimes you get addicted to that because it's really happy. And the third time I went there, I had all the tissues ready. <laughs> and I told all the people, look, it always affects me this way. So you know, please apologize if I start crying, but it's just around the corner here. And when I led these uh, Buddhist society members in, they were doing restoration. <laughs> they had this big cloth covering the Buddha so no paint would fall from the ceiling onto this amazing Buddha statue. And I was, this is the trouble with expectations. When you expect it, and you go around the corner, and you see it's all covered up. Oh, that was suffering. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what happened? It's got really good karma somewhere. The person who was doing the restoration saw me, and he didn't say anything. He, you know, he spoke Hindi, I suppose. Uh, but then, without being asked, he took hold of the cover and poured it off. <laughs> that was delightful. It taught me a lesson, but I still got the reward of seeing this beautiful Buddha statue. But anyhow, this is one of the reasons why that it is a happy path, and hopefully you will see some of that happiness. And especially when you get into these joyful states of deep meditation. It's like big burdens have been taken off you. You know, it's like you've had a, a big heavy backpack on. You know, your past, your future, your five senses, and now you're taking it off. <sighs> and multiply that by a thousand, and you get some idea of the happiness. You're free from <coughs> very big heavy weights. And when you are free of those heavy weights, you realize just how heavy those weights are, like your body. Yeah, you can try and become fit. You can eat the right food. You can drink the right drinks, just like I do. You know, fish and chips and tea with condensed milk. 
Look, <laughs> I get into trouble. I don't mind being rebellious and getting into trouble. There was this one Englishman I knew. His name was Ted. And uh, he had very bad cancer. Because he was no, a smoker in those days. Everybody smoked. So, you know, his lungs were shot. So eventually, after trying so many treatments, radiation, chemotherapy and the stuff, they took him to the hospice to die. When he went into the hospice, that you know, I just visited him the next day. He said a weird experience happened. The first night in the hospice, the nurse came up to him and said, Ted, what would you like to eat tonight for dinner? And he said, well, you know, I've, it's not just the cancer. I've got diabetes, so I can't have anything sugary or sweet. I've got high cholesterol, so I can't have anything oily. I've got hardened arteries, I can't have anything salty. And he went on with all these complaints he had. And the nurse did what I'm doing now, put her hands up like this and said, Ted, you're not going to die because of diabetes or because of hardened arteries. You're not going to have a heart attack. You're going to be die according to the doctor, in about five or six days uh, because of your cancer. You can eat anything you like. And Ted's eyes went as wide as dinner plates. <laughs> you mean I can eat anything I like? Yes. And so he had all this favourite food he hadn't had for years because of all these sicknesses. He really, as they say, pigged out. And the cancer went into remission. <laughs> the happiness and joy which he was feeling just really zapped that cancer. You know, and he, he walked out of that hospital after that hospice after seven days. And he had to go back another six months to die properly. But <laughs> well, that boost of happiness and joy was something which was amazing. And it just proved the therapeutic value, you know, of a little bit of, not a little bit, but a lot of happiness and joy. That's one of the reasons why you get into some of these meditations, you get lots and lots of bliss. That has a great therapeutic value for you. And personal stories, I shouldn't do too much personal stories, but I do remember uh, many years ago during a range retreat feeling so sickly and I just had zero energy and I'd recall just uh, sometimes even dreaming that I was walking to the hall and I couldn't make it, I just had to sit down in the rain and even though it was really unpleasant and freezing cold I just couldn't go on anymore, zero energy. And of course, uh, it, was, it was one of the other Dr. Mendes's, that's Nagita's father here. He came and he said, oh, well, I'll admit you to hospital for six days just to do some tests to see what's wrong with you. And so, you know, there was a local hospital, Rockingham Hospital, and so I was in there for six days. And the problem was, you know, going to hospital, you've got your name on the bed, above the bed, and the doctor, the doctor, you know, Dr. Ariaman Mendes, you know, he was a gynecologist. <laughs> so I, had me, I was wearing my robes because I didn't, I didn't have pyjamas. 
I'm a monk. I was wearing my robes in this strange dress under Dr. Mendes, the gynecologist. <laughs> I got some great comments from those nurses. <laughs> they didn't find anything wrong with me, but anyway, they did every test you could possibly do when nothing was found. And so I just came back to the monastery and then started getting some really nice meditation. I remember having some amazing meditation. And then afterwards going to see you know, Ajahn Jakwe, as the boss said, and I told him what I'd experienced. He said something which was so prescient. He said, I don't think you're going to be sick anymore. And that was the last time I'd been sick. So was 30 years ago. I haven't been to hospital. I sometimes get COVID, I don't. Honestly, I just don't get sick. Weird. Why? Sometimes those meditations, they give you the source of joy and happiness. And that's powerful. Sometimes you don't realize how powerful that is. So anyway, the lives devoted to pleasure. This is supposed to be a life devoted to pleasure. Coming on to the meditation retreat here in China Grove. And just the last little point on that. There's one of the other suttas I didn't bring in here, but there's a Dhammachedia sutta. That's in the early Majjhima Nikaya. You can read it, look it up yourself if you wish. But there was King Pasenadi, one of the Buddha's chief disciples. You know, after work, being a king, he would actually walk the distance, a nice bit of exercise, from the town of Sawati to the Buddha's main monastery, you know, Jeta one, the Jeta Grove Monastery. And when he went there, it was that probably his last... Uh, his last day of his life. But he walked there and he came and saw the Buddha. And the first thing he did was bow to the Buddha and just started kissing him all over his feet. Now that's not a good thing to do because even here in Jhana Grove, when you're walking, there's so many uh, animals you might, or dirt you might uh, walk on. You must get all sorts of diseases like kissing somebody's feet. Obviously the Buddha is something special, but nevertheless, the Buddha said, why are you doing this? And the king said, it's just because I've just enjoyed having this monastery so close to my place of work, and I can come here every evening if I need to, and just pay respects to you, and learn from you. And he said he also enjoyed, in that monastery, walking through there on his way to the Buddha's hut because all the monks, the nuns, were always happy and smiling. And that was a wonderful little picture of just what those monasteries were like in those days. The monks were happy and smiling. And the Buddha said, yes, that's, that's what you can expect when people are practicing meditation and getting insights overcome the problems of life. They lessen the suffering. You smile more. And to me, that when you do come to interviews, or I ask you, how's your meditation going? That to me is sometimes more important than even the profound words that you say. And what is the emotional effect on you? You know, from you know, what you've seen and how you've calmed the mind down. 
and even many years ago, there was one gentleman, I respect him, but he didn't really understand what jhanas were. And so I asked him one day, how are you? And he looked pretty miserable. And he said, oh, it's not so good. He said, you know, I just, I can't get the second jhana, I can only get the first. <laughs> <laughs> and when he said that, it was a, what on earth are you talking about? That's madness. If any of you even just got a first journey, like you're walking on air. So that when that happiness comes, please don't be afraid of it. It's par for the course. And sometimes, you know, you have to let go a little bit more of trying to control it so it can maintain itself and grow even deeper. So you really can bliss out. I know I shouldn't say that because we already have a lot of trouble when you want to come back here again for the next retreat. You've only got about five or six seconds or something before it fills up, <laughs> these retreats. You can understand why. Because this is just gives you enormous insight, enormous uh, wisdom, and also... You have the time of your life uh, practicing like this. If you do it properly, it's lots and lots and lots of fun. And because you're practicing this way, that it's not just fun when you're meditating. Sometimes when you're eating, even the food tastes more delicious than you've probably ever eaten before. It's weird. It's nothing to do with the cooks. Everything to do with the fact that your mindfulness is increasing. And you can be able to, to pick out more and more flavors. My classic story was finishing off one of my own personal retreats. I do at least one a year, a 15-day retreat. I don't talk to anybody. Food gets taken to me. But the first day after that retreat, after it had ended, I went to the dining room and got the breakfast. And that breakfast included some baked beans. And because I was just so peaceful, I just put one bean, one baked bean, you know, on a spoon and put it in my mouth. Wow! In all my life, I've never tasted, experienced, such a delicious baked bean. Just in the tomato sauce on the outside, I don't know if you just really lingered long enough to experience what it really is like. <coughs> it's got a kind of sweetness to it, but a little bit of um, sourness, and like, you know, like tomato sauce does. And it was just perfectly balanced. And as I tasted it, it was like a taste explosion in my mouth. It's only one little bean. And then I crushed you know, the bean between my, uh, in my jaws, between my teeth. And it was just a perfect texture. I couldn't imagine anything being more uh, appropriate and more delicious. It was such a hard thing to swallow it, simply because the taste was lingering. It was like getting rid of one of the most beautiful tastes I've ever had in my monastic life. One baked bean. 
Of course, I had a whole plate of them to eat next. <laughs> but the point was, it surprised me. How can such a simple object like a baked bean sort of be experienced like the most delicious thing you've tasted in years? And it was because the mindfulness had been like cleaned, like you have your glasses and this morning um, Nicholas cleaned the glasses so I can see more of you. I don't mean the number of people, but more of, you know, the face which is in front of me. The glasses are cleaner. When you clean out your mind by eradicating these hindrances, even tastes become amazing. And then you go and see, oh, nature is really amazing too. This actually shows you know, that your readiness for insight is growing. One of the first retreats, it was the first retreat I ever did, I think I was 18 at the time, could have been 19, I forget now. It was over in Cambridge. We got a boarding, uh, our meditation group, we hired a boarding house for students, which had us the rooms, and this was during the vacation time, so that uh, the lady who would usually feed students could feed the meditators. Now, one thing I would say about English food, it wasn't noticed, it wasn't really uh, well known for its haute cuisine. It was just usually in those days, you know, if you weren't a vegetarian, it would be uh, meat and two vegetables, two types of vegetables. And it was all boiled to hell, so whatever vegetables it were, you know, you couldn't taste it. It's all the same. And this was usual British cuisine. And of all the cuisine in the whole country, the worst cooks, the lowest on the rungs, were those who cooked for students in boarding houses. I knew that from bitter experience, and I thought, this is not going to be nice. I really thought of taking some sandwiches instead of, you know, getting the food done by the cooks. But it was a total surprise. In this boarding house, the lady who cooked the food for these retreatants, it tasted delicious. Every meal, even just the potatoes which were boiled and boiled and boiled, <laughs> you could still taste them, they were delicious. At the time, of course, I didn't realise what was going on. The food was still as tasteless as ordinary, but because my mindfulness had really gone up quite a few notches, whatever flavour was left after all that boiling and steaming, <laughs> you could pick up. It was weird. But what really threw me was that when, after the, um, uh, the meal, in the morning, actually before the meal, you were, we were allowed to go for a walk for one hour every morning and before breakfast. And uh, that walk, anywhere you wanted, for a bit of exercise. And because this was you know, the town I went to university in, so I knew it very well, so I went to the botanical gardens. And I thought that'd be a wonderful place for a walk. 
But honestly, I never got past the entrance. Eight of those nine days, I didn't have exercise at all. When I got into the, the entry gate, a, a back gate of the botanical gardens, the first day, early in the morning, you saw this clump of bamboo. And I was stunned. You know, sometimes things just catch you. They're so beautiful. Bamboo is a common feature of Chinese watercolors. And you know why? It's because it's a very slender, uh, delicate sort of, like, big piece of grass. And just the way that it bends, it gets thinner as it goes to its top, but the way that it bends under its own weight gives this beautiful arc through the, the morning sky. And even the leaves are not like fat and gross, they're very slender. And the colors are refined. And it's not like the brown bark of an English tree. It's smooth, it's yellow with uh, maybe a bit of green in there as well. And all the different colors there and its shape were captivating. And I stood there just staring at it you know, for about 10 or 15 minutes without moving. But I did have enough wisdom to realize that if somebody had seen me, this young student just looking at a bamboo tree without moving, they would have called the ambulance and they'd taken me to the hospital thinking I was on some sort of drug. Because that's what it would have looked like. But there was a bench close by, so I sat on that bench. That was more acceptable, to sit on a bench and stare. But stand and stare, that was just not on. And when it came to just close to breakfast time, I had to tear myself off that bench and just you know, almost run back to the retreat center because I ran out of time. I still hadn't finished this most beautiful clump of bamboo I'd ever seen in my life. So the next morning I went back again, same thing, sat on the bench and stared at this clump of bamboo for about 50 minutes. It was weird. And yeah, I was supposed to go for exercise, but I just wanted to finish with this clump of bamboo. I never did. Eight days. One day I decided I'd go by the river because I did need exercise. So anyway, eight of those nine days I spent in the morning with the most beautiful clump of bamboo in the world. It was delightful. And then what happened after the retreat was completed, then back to studies again in your social life and just busy messing around, all sorts of stuff. And then I had a free afternoon. And on that free afternoon, I decided I'm going to go and visit the most beautiful clump of bamboo in the world. I got on my bicycle and then just through the busy traffic and finally got there to the gate, which was open, so I can go and see the most beautiful clump of bamboo in the world. Again, with a lot of excitement and anticipation, when I looked at that clump of bamboo, in Cambridge, it's cold there. It's, it's on a plateau, so you get lots of cold winds. It's nowhere near the correct place to, uh, to plant some bamboo. <laughs> and that poor bamboo looked so sort of dry and miserable, and all the leaves just had no life to them. The bamboo was there, but the beauty had gone. It wasn't there anymore. And that shocked me. As I was realizing, just when your mind is very powerful and the hindrances are gone, or mostly gone, 
Even a clump of bamboo looks extraordinarily beautiful. These are kind of insights which you get. What is the nature of beauty? Delight. How come you can actually look at the breath and it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen in your life? But when you know you're busy at work and then you look at your breath, it's just so ordinary. And this, I, I've got to tell this story. This is one of the uh, pinnacles of such perception. And that was the time here in Jhana Grove, doing some meditation with you, and then I had to go to the toilet. And this happened in the men's toilets, just opposite the laundry, in the middle toilet there. We should put a plaque there somewhere, because a lot of people know this story, and it's totally true. I went there to do what we call a number two. <laughs> and it's very easy to do when you're meditating, because you know how to relax and let go. Honestly, the people who push are in a rush and have to do it quickly. That's when they get um, hemorrhoids and stuff. You don't get those as a monk if you know how to relax and let go. Simple things. So anyway, after doing the business, I made a mistake. I looked in the bowl. Wow. <laughs> I think I even said that. Wow. In all my life, I've never, ever seen such a beautiful piece of shit. <laughs> Honestly, have you ever looked at you know, what you create in that toilet bowl? <laughs> and it was, not, it was not just all the same color brown. There were darker shades and lighter shades. And just you looked at the, the color and just how they all interacted together and how it was like uh, formed like some sculpture by Michelangelo. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was so balanced and amazing. And then there was, sorry? <laughs> it was quite a while ago, I didn't have, a, I don't have a mobile phone now even, but if I did have <laughs> Of course I would have photographed it. <laughs> that's what it looked like. And then, you know, you, you go to the, uh, not the smell, the aroma. <laughs> and uh, you know, I smelled many things in my life, but that was like earthy, that was like real. And it was just very full, it's not just um, some fake scent. You know, it was a real beautiful <laughs> aroma. And there it was. And I thought, wow. I must have been in there for about 10 minutes at least. <laughs> and I realized I had to get back in here to carry on a talk or something. I'm not quite sure what. But then, you know, you had to dispose of it. That was so hard. <laughs> There's a button on the top there you press, and I don't want to. I can't. That would be just like sacrilegious. That should be preserved. <laughs> And I had my finger on the, the top. No, I can't do it. And it was only, only I reckon, because all that training for so many years, 
on how to let go of attachments. <laughs> <laughs> you can finally do it, you press the button. And the most beautiful piece of brown material I've ever created just went into the sewers forever. Oh, that was so sad. <laughs> but honestly, it did look beautiful and smell fragrant. Now, if a piece of feces can uh, look like that and smell like that, where is beauty? Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. The beauty is in the mind. And if you're really peaceful, and the hindrances start to disappear, it's amazing just how much beauty you can see everywhere. Which means that when you meditate, you can just say, look at your knee, which is hurting. Ah, it's gorgeous. You're not being some sort of weirdo, it's just, just the way the mind works. It's what the mind adds to these things. And if you want to know how to watch the breathing, and the breathing becomes so beautiful, that's what happens. The breathing is just boring. Just in, out, in, out, in, out. But when the mind starts to get strong, it looks gorgeous. And things like peace, stillness. A lot of people just think, this is nothing to ex get excited about. But after a while, the mindfulness increases those perceptions. That's the most wonderful, amazing thing to explore so many facets of stillness. And they're going to areas which are just mind-blowing. And then, you know, when your body vanishes, you have this mind, which is more refined. For you to be able to perceive that, perceive its incredible beauty. Why is it when all these people say that you know they they become hermits, or they you know become these monks or nuns secluded for years? Why do they say they experience so much happiness? Enjoy. They're not saying this is real. And you can do the same. So while you are meditating, I mentioned to this to you this already. There will come the times when you just get up from here and you're walking, say, to the dining room, you know, to get a glass of water or something, and you're looking at the floor the ground, and after a while that ground kind of opens up to you. You see how amazing it is, how beautiful it is. And so you do see, like monks, nuns sometimes, staring at the ground, transfixed by it. They start to see the incredible beauty in what's just an ordinary dirty piece of concrete. But it turns into something amazing. That's actually where I usually say at this point of, uh, what's his name again? Uh, the, the poet. Blake, I think he yeah. uh, William Blake. And one of the lines in his poems, a little quartet, 
was to see a world in a grain of sand. See a heaven in a wildflower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand. An eternity in an hour. And when I say to see a world in a grain of sand, in this tiniest of things, you can see so much in there. You're not imagining it, it just opens out to you. Your mindfulness is so strong. You can see so much in there and it's delightful. A heaven in a wildflower. The wildflowers are tiny things. And often people just walk past them, they don't notice them even. But when you get very mindful and aware, you can see them so clearly, their shape, the number of petals, you know, what's inside them, the way that the colours just aren't uniform but they start to sort of fade away towards the edges and the scent in them and it's a tiny flower. You can look at that and just see so much in it. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand. Your mind is no longer contained or bound. It's infinite without any edges to it. There's a perception which just blow your mind. An eternity in an hour. And the talk is always one hour long. <laughs> We've almost come to the end of it. But anyhow, that is actually what happens. You're empowering your mind with these patterns of meditation and the allowing the joy and happiness to come in. And if any time any of these talks or anything else which you hear or any of your own experience in meditation, if it really inspires you, then wow, it's amazing. You can get up and just go to the toilet quickly. Uh, no, I shouldn't have said that. But I mean, just take a quick break, but then go and sit down again. Because the inspiration, it's like a flame of happiness has been lit. It's pretty easy to light the rest of the bonfire and just have all this incredible inspiration. So often I've got some of my best meditations, the deepest ones, after being inspired by something like a talk from an Ajahn Chah. You know, sometimes it was really boring, I've got to be honest with you. And sometimes you'd hit the spot and, oh, wow, it's amazing. And when it did hit the spot, you realise when the talk was over, just carry on meditating. And you just go into some really amazing deep states of mind. The inspiration is what is a great cause you know, for deep meditation. Because the mind has tasted something and just wants more. It's had the entree, now it eats the full course. So that's a little talk on the joy and the happiness of meditation. So hopefully you can have bliss out to the max. Sadhu, sadhu. If any of you want to know that why I am a monk, why the nuns are nuns, now you know. I'm having a wonderful time. I used to have these old postcards where we were on holiday, having a wonderful time, wish you were here. <laughs> <laughs>